Well, hello, everybody. I want to add my welcome to Janet's welcome. Welcome all, especially newcomers. And um, my name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York. And um, yeah, I'm going to jump like right in because this is a pretty, um, I, I say this every time because this is a really important chapter. Now, this is, this got, there's a lot of information in the chapter. And I want to try to do my best to cover as much as I can. So, um, we're looking in the chapter, the family afterward. And I think what's important is like the family after what, right? Like after, well, it's after the addict, the compulsive overeater has come to recovery. And generally it's after the compulsive overeater has been well on their way, if not to a recovered state, because this is the chapter that comes, you know, after the chapter working with others already and after the chapter that's addressing you know other members in their in the in the addict's life so it's it's a chapter that's assuming that the addict has already been well on their way and in recovery or if not recovered so page 122 says while wrapped in cotton wool and placed on a pedestal Successful readjustment means just the opposite. All members of the family should meet upon the common ground of tolerance, understanding, and love. And this involves a process of deflation. So the whole family does not have to treat us with kid gloves, you know, afraid that we're going to binge if they treat us just like a regular family member. And what does that mean? Well, at this point, our families don't have to hide their stash of candy or tiptoe around us, afraid that we're gonna like, you know, turn to the food as soon as they say something we don't like. You know, in early abstinence, it might be that people give us a free pass. And if your family is doing that for you, if you're starting on recovery or if they've done that for you, that's lovely, that's wonderful. But our recovery cannot depend upon other people tiptoeing around us, right? That, that would mean that we're really not recovered. That would mean that we're reliant on human beings, you know, following what our will is. And that's not the case, right? In a recovered state, which is this afterward period that we're talking about, what happens is we become a loving and tolerant parent, child, sister, brother, spouse, et cetera right? We become the tolerant one. And, and I think it's important that we um, define what it means to be tolerant, right? If I'm going to be tolerant, um, it means that I am not so sensitive to what other people are doing. It means that I have, I have a higher threshold for discomfort. I have a higher threshold for not getting my way, right? And, um, it also means that my ego is going to be deflated. You know, we're sometimes referred to as king baby, emotionally immature, demanding rulers filled with self-importance. And it was actually funny today because I was, I was in a town um, and there was a store that was called King Baby. And I started laughing and I didn't, you know, I'm like, oh my goodness, I even took a picture of the storefront. Um, 
And so what does it mean like to be King Baby? It's um, I want to be treated like a baby. I want to be babied. I want to be coddled. I want like everybody to worry about me, my comfort, take care of all my needs. But I also want to be the king. I want to rule, right? I want to be the, the ruler from my throne should be my high chair. And that's not the way we can live anymore, right? It's, um, you know, if I'm king baby, I'm emotionally immature and I'm demanding and I'm filled with self-importance, right? And we have to, we have to like do everything in our power not to live that way. Page 122 also says the fact that we find the more one member of the family demands that the others concede to him, the more resentful they become. And this makes for discord and unhappiness. So if, if other members of the family have to concede, it means that they have to admit defeat and surrender, right? Not to God, right? But to me. If they're having to concede to me, right? It means that they're surrendering to me. And of course that's gonna lead to discord, right? Disagreement and lacking harmony in a family. And it causes unhappiness because who wants to have to surrender, right? First of all, and who wants to surrender to a family member, especially a family member who's got an addiction that, more than likely impacted the family. Why would anybody want to surrender to that? And we need to make sure that we don't demand this from our families, right? We can't hold them hostage and use our recovery as the, as sort of the bargaining tool, you know, like well, if you do that, I might, you know, that that really triggers me, right? That really upsets me. That, you know, like you can't upset me because that might lead me to eat. And that is not the way that we're defined as the family afterwards, right? And it says here, you know, we don't demand this from our families, right? Okay, why? It is not, is it not because each wants to play the lead is not each trying to arrange the family show to his liking? Is he not unconsciously trying to see what he can take from family life rather than give? And I think about that stage director and how we're forever trying to arrange everything to our liking. Why? Why would I try to arrange everything to my liking? Is it because that I want what's best for my family? Is it because we want what's genuinely best for the family? Sometimes, yes, right? Sometimes it's like, yeah, I want everything like this because I want everything to be good in my family. Um, but even that is flawed thinking because believing that I know what's best for my family and that I have all the answers is self-centered thinking. You know, what do I know really, right? What do I really know? Because all I have is my perspective, is the way that I see it through my eyes and through my vantage point. And you know, what I've come to understand and, and drill down on, especially when I'm working with sponsees who 
get worked up over how their family may or may not be doing what they know, they know is right and is going to lead to happiness. One of the things I remind myself is we don't even know how much food to eat, right? I don't even know how much food to feed my body. What makes me think I know what's going to be better for anybody else? And I often say, you know, I'm a grown woman who has to commit my food on a daily basis to another grown woman, right? And then I've got to put it on a scale because I don't even know how much a portion is, right? Without some sort of measurement. So what makes me think that I truly know what's best for others? Sometimes, right? And here's the thing, right? Sometimes it's because I want what's best for others. But sometimes if I'm being entirely honest here, I don't really care what's best for others. I have to be like brutally honest. Um, in a family, oftentimes we all just want things our own way because we want them our own way. You know, sometimes I just want what I want because I want it, because it's going to make it easy for me, going to make it comfortable for me. And in recovery, I can't live that way anymore. Right? That's not the afterwards that we're describing here. I now have to look at the world from an entirely different angle. That's what recovery tells us. I must be rid of this selfishness or it will kill me. Sounds a lot like step three, right? This is where step three comes into play all the time in regards to our families. Remember that selfishness is the root of our troubles. And, and in how it works on page 62, it discusses this. It says, above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. We must or it kills us. God makes that possible. And there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. So since so much of this is happening, we're kind of told as an unconscious level, meaning it's not even deliberate. How can we work around this then? If, if it's that I want what I want and I'm not even aware because it's like underneath, right? How can I work around it? Well, we pray and we ask God to help us be open to his direction. You know, in the chapter into action, page 86 says, before we begin, before we begin what? Before we begin our day, we ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. Under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with assurance, for after all, God gave us brains to use. Our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is cleared of wrong motives. So if I want to improve my relationships with my family, then I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for them. And I'm going to pray for, for inspiration and intuitive thought for direction. I'm not going to pray that they bend to my will or do things my way. That should not be my prayer, right? But rather, my prayer has to be, how can I be more useful to them, right? God, show me how to be more useful. And so, you know, for myself, I've got prayers. I've got a prayer for my husband, a very specific prayer. 
I have specific prayers for my children. Um, you know, when I pray for my husband, um, I ask that my thoughts and my vision be so that I can see the beauty and the good in him. I ask God to make me, you know, help me see the beauty and the good in him and let me see him through God's eyes and teach me to be the partner he designed me to be. But that should be my ultimate prayer. Not that my husband does everything the way that I want him to, right? But then I be the partner that God wants me to be. And for my children, you know, I thank God for assigning me the role as mother. I thank him, you know, for giving me people I admire and, and adore. And, I, you know, for me, I say my children are the beautiful gifts of your all-powerful creation. Thank you for giving their spirits and mine this time to be on earth together. And I know that our earthly time is finite and not a moment should be wasted. And I, you know, I, I pray that, you know, I remind myself that I'm always attempting, I'm often attempting to advise and direct. And I say things to try to fix and it goes met with pushback. Thank God, help me refrain from this behavior. I'm far more useful when I don't pretend to know the answers. Give me the strength to just listen and offer love. And then I ask God to help me set boundaries and guidelines and then continue to give me the strength to honor and respect the rules that I, that I set forth. Teach me how to lovingly discipline and how to tolerate the discomfort of my children's discomfort and help me parent without fear. You know, um, I, you know, what else I ask is that um, I ask God to help me lovingly connect, help me find the right words, the right demeanor, the right compassion needed to fulfill the awesome role that he's assigned. You know, and those kind of prayers can go, you know, around many. I've got many, many specific prayers for my children. And I find that the family afterwards requires that this person do a lot of praying so that I relate correctly to my family. You know, on page 122, it says, um, years of living with an alcoholic is almost sure to make any wife or child neurotic. That's what it says. And the entire family is to some extent ill. So what does it mean, you know, when you look up neurotic? It says abnormally sensitive, obsessive, tense, and anxious. So when you live with someone who's unpredictable, right? That was me, unpredictable, up and down, wildly excited, and then terribly depressed, it causes the family to be tense. They're nervous, you know? I, and I think for myself, what were some of the things I did to in, to like drum up tension in my family? If I, I'll just talk about the food for a minute. I would swear off foods on a regular basis. I would make this very loud declaration saying I'm swearing this off forever. And not only would I swear it off, but I would demand that the house be rid of it. I would throw it all out, whether it was mine or not. Everybody's staff was in the garbage because after all, they had to help King Baby here, right? My whims became their demands. And then what would happen is I would suddenly 
start eating those things again, first in secret. So now I demanded that all of it be removed from the house. So now I'm eating it, but I'm sneaky and I'm dishonest. And I'm, which meant I spent more time away from the house in hiding, not pitching in, not being productive because food was my master and it demanded me first, right? So I would be running out, you know, I have to, I don't know, I have to run out for a prescription. I have to get something refilled at CVS. I, I have to get whatever it was. I had a million excuses. It was really so I can get candy, the things I threw out. And then it got to a point where I couldn't sneak it out anymore. I would just be bringing it back in. I would just bring everything back in again. And nobody could say a word to me about it. It was as if they had to pretend. The thing that I said to them, don't let me eat again. Now they had to not only let me eat it again, but pretend that they never even heard me say, don't let me eat it again. This makes people really uncomfortable, like on a regular basis, who the heck knows what to do with you, right? Like if my husband said, you want to go for an ice cream? I would burst into tears. You don't even care about me, right? I mean, so you make people walk on eggshells around them. We make people neurotic, you know? And not only was it like that with the food, but it was just like that with my behavior, right? One minute, sweet, calm, loving, and the next, like, depressed, hating myself. I don't want to go anywhere, you know, um, don't touch me, right? Don't touch me. Um, page 123, second paragraph says, it will take time to clear away the wreck. It's going to take us a long time. Though old buildings will eventually be replaced by finer ones, the new structures will take years to complete. Years, right? Years. Oh, boy. So if it's going to take years, it means we're going to have to be patient and diligent. Patient, maybe for the family to notice these new structures being built. And patient for them to even acknowledge the changes. They might say nothing about the change in us. We think that we've changed so much and we're waiting for people to acknowledge how wonderful we've become. And they're not so quick, right? We have to be patient for that. But I also have to be patient for my own consistencies in changing. You know, what replaces the wreck is a result of our amends, not the grumblings of I'm sorry or even those melodramatic promises to change. That doesn't convince anybody, but it is especially the living amends, right? People react eventually when they see that we've changed, that we're different. And as we live our amends, things are going to be even better than before. That's what we're promised. Page 123, the fourth paragraph says, the first impulse will be to bury these skeletons in the dark closet and padlock the door. But we're not slaves to our impulses anymore. I want to remind us, just because it's my impulse to bury the bad stuff, I'm not a slave to my impulses, right? That's part of what it means to be free. We know that there is something powerful that happens when we pause, when I pause, when I don't look to bury things right away. Page 124 says, experience is the thing of supreme value in life. 
That is true only if one is willing to turn the past to good account. We grow by our willingness to face and rectify errors and convert them into assets. The alcoholic's past thus becomes the principal asset of the family and frequently it is almost the only one. And then it further says, cling to the thought, I love this, that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. And this is just incredible. We're going to have better lives than we ever had before. That's what we're told. And all the garbage of our past, all the terrible things that we've done, we don't have to be ashamed about them. I don't have to hide them. I don't have to hide the truth of my experiences, even the bad ones. Our experience can save people's lives, which is our purpose, right? And what this tells me is that all those years of suffering was not a waste of time after all. None of it was a waste. God takes the trash and reshapes it and turns it into good, you know? And I think about what an incredible gift we get here. We can avert, prevent and ward off death and misery. Like when, when people say we're just another, I'm just another bozo on the bus. This actually says no, that my experience is, is very special. I have a unique set of qualifications to help other people. That's what I'm kind of told that my experiences allow me to avert death and misery. And my dark past is now a treasure. It's something of value. Um, and I think like I've, I've done these projects in the past where like it's like recycled art. Right, you take something that is meant to be garbage and then you, I don't know, you do something with it and now it becomes a treasure, like upcycled. That's what happens with our lives. Our lives become upcycled with things that looked like horrible. There's not a single bad experience I have in this disease that I have not been able to put to good use when working with others. You know, when I share aspects of my story, which to the outside world sound horrific, embarrassing, shameful. When we share it here with another person, what we give them is hope, right? We demonstrate that these, that these steps work, that God's power is real. It exists. The bottom of page 124, it says, it is possible to dig up past misdeeds so they become a blight, a veritable plague. A few of us have had these growing pains and they hurt a great deal. We think that unless some good and useful purpose is to be served, past occurrences should not be discussed. So this part is really speaking about other people's negative past. And they're really kind of talking about infidelities here. But it can be applied to many other areas of behaviors as well, right? Stealing or drug use or fits of rage. Digging up those things picking open scabs that are healing just because we can, right? That's not what we do. 
if we say that we forgive someone, then we don't keep bringing up their misdeeds to others. We leave it to rest. We let it go. And if forgiveness is difficult, then we pray for the person or situation. And so what this tells me is I can bring up my past misdeeds so long as they don't bring pain and embarrassment to a family, right? And I'm certainly not going to bring up their misdeeds in, in, a, in an attempt to offer hope to another person. That's not, that's not on me, right? It's my own. I can bring up my own. I can share my own experiences to be useful. Page 125 says, a man may criticize or laugh at himself and it will affect others favorably. So like we have to lighten up about our own stuff. And I think it's incredible how we can laugh at ourselves. And it's helpful to others when we don't take ourselves so seriously. And this is so useful when we're working with new sponsees and those that are starting their inventory when they begin working with us. If we can share our own messes in a humorous, lighthearted way, what that does is it helps others feel safe with us, right? When I can laugh at some of my own crazy, my own experiences, my own hypocrisy, even before when I was telling you about like making people crazy, right? Bringing the food in and taking it out. And I can find humor in that. And it, and it opens the door for other people to share from their heart as well. It feels safer. But criticism or ridicule coming from another often produces the contrary effect, right? Not criticizing. Members of a family should watch such matters carefully for one careless, inconsiderate remark has been known to raise the very devil. We alcoholics are sensitive people. It takes some of us a long time to outgrow that serious handicap. And I have to say, I am extremely sensitive. And sensitivity is, is a form of self-centeredness. It's selfishness, it's self-centeredness. We get offended easily. We take things personally. It doesn't disappear overnight. We should remember that our families have learned to respond to inconsiderate remarks from watching how we respond, right? My children have learned from me by example. And I, you know, so we're to cut them some slack and be careful with our criticism of them. And oh boy, I could write a book about my criticisms of other people. As surprisingly self-centered and sensitive I am to myself, I'm not as sensitive to other people. And I have criticized others. And, you know, it often comes masked as advice, giving people advice. But I have now heard over and over, I've got a very dear friend who's not in program, but who tells me this all the time, that unsolicited advice is criticism. I have to remember that. Other people are not my projects. It's not my job to offer advice when it hasn't been asked. Um, 
nobody appreciates being criticized. And so today, if somebody I love comes to me with a problem, especially a family member, I ask them, are you interested in feedback or would you just, or do you want me to just be a sounding board? Would you like me to just listen? And many times my kids especially will say, no, just listen. We just want you to listen. Right? Right? Now they've told me. Many alcoholics further on, it says, are enthusiasts. They run to extremes. At the beginning of recovery, a man will take as a rule one of two directions. He may either plunge into a frantic attempt to get on his feet in business, or he may be so enthralled by his new life that he talks or thinks of little else. In either case, certain family problems will arise. With these, we have had experiences galore. And so I've ex seen and experienced either being obsessed by work, myself included, I would throw myself into my job, and I would get like a real hit there. And then also another area that I see people getting obsessed is by healthy eating, by healthy bodies, getting obsessed about their exercise, getting obsessed about their um, nutrition, right? People get like really crazy about what, what's in different foods and getting body focused or else they get on fire and entirely focused on the 12 steps. And both of these can leave the family wondering where they fit in, right? If we get all lit up about these 12 steps, which yes, we do, I do too. But my family might wonder, what about me? Where do I fit here? Or if I get all excited about my exercise, or my nutrition, my healthy eating. They might wonder, what about us? Where do we fit? Page 127 says, the family must realize that dad, though marvelously improved, is still convalescing. So we're still convalescing. We're still getting well. And they should be thankful that he is sober and able to be of this world once more. Let them praise his progress. Let them remember that his drinking brought all kinds of damage that may take long to repair. And if they sense these things, they will not take so seriously his periods of crankiness, depression, or apathy, which will disappear where there is love, tolerance, and spiritual understanding. So I'd say it's not for me to tell the other family how they ought to be viewing me, but I'll say we're gonna be cranky at times. And so will our family members, right? Remember, they've learned from us. And we can't take it so seriously, even my own crankiness. To me, this chapter really illuminates that need for getting a little thicker skinned because sensitivity, again, is really self-centeredness. And, you know, it says, since the home has suffered more than anything else, it is well that a man exert himself there. He is not likely to get far in any direction if he fails to show unselfishness and love under his own roof. Okay, so now we've got to talk about what it means to exert. Because it says, a man ought to exert himself there in his home. We need to exert ourselves in our homes. What does that mean? Well, here's the definition of exert. To put forth or into use as power. 
exercise as ability or influence put into vigorous action to exert every effort. And two, to put oneself into strenuous, vigorous action or effort. That's what it means to exert. So my own spiritual growth occurs when I use effort to practice the spiritual principles in my home. So is it easy to do? Well, no, obviously not if it requires effort, right? Anything effort means that it's gonna be difficult, means that it's gonna be work. And what does that mean? How can I use effort to show unselfishness and love? Well, first, let's look at what unselfishness means. What is that? Unselfish, not selfish, or disinterested, generous, altruistic. If I'm unselfish with my husband, that means I do my best to put his needs ahead of my needs. I'm generous with my time and with not having my way. And, you know, sometimes when I read this, I think, oh my gosh, it sounds so anti-feminist. Like, am I supposed to be a doormat for my husband? Like, is that what I'm recovering for? You know, it sounds like I'm supposed to be a doormat. And oftentimes I'm afraid of being too giving. I'm afraid. Like, you know, what am I going to be then? If I, am I going to be stepped on? You know, I'm afraid of being taken advantage of right? But we don't have to be afraid of that. Not so. We know that we are not servile or scraping. We're told that. Not servile, not scraping. As God's people, we stand on our feet. We don't crawl before anyone. So there's something in between crawling before anyone and putting someone's happiness in the forefront of our practices. And what this tells me if I'm unsure and I don't know, is this gonna be like being servile and scraping? Is this making me a doormat or is this being giving? Well, if there's a choice between two things and one choice benefits a spouse or benefits a family member more than me, more than the other choice does, then I'm directed to demonstrate unselfishness. I'm directed to, Yep, to, to sort of be a little more malleable. And I also believe that in step three, where I really turned my will in my life over to the care of God, then if I live in agreement with God's will for me, meaning I love and I give to my family, because I do believe that God gives us families to love. I do believe that God loves the family. That's part of my set of ideas, my principles then if I live in agreement of that, then I don't have to worry about being taken advantage of. That sounds so trivial. If I've really put myself in God's hands or being too giving and too loving, it sounds like a, like a silly thing that I have to be worried about. God will give me boundaries and guidelines and he will give me what I need. We all know there are difficult lives and families, it says, but the man who is getting over alcoholism or who's getting over the woman who's getting over compulsive eating must remember that he did much to make them so, right? So if my family is difficult, I need to look at the mirror. I need to look in the mirror and ask myself, 
did I contribute to their to their having a difficult demeanor? Right? What part of this do I own? You know, this chapter, like sometimes I read it and I think, oh no, ugh. Because it just keeps saying, oh, you don't like the way that your family's behaving? Oh, you don't like the way your kids are acting? You don't like the way your mother's being? You don't like your husband's, you know, way? Hmm. How did you contribute? What part do you have in this? You know, and remember our amends. There's a long period of reconstruction ahead. Our 10th step reminds us that we take the lead. That's also our directions, that we set the pace for the family. We take the lead. And the place where I always behaved the worst was in the privacy of my own home. Many of us will agree with that, that the place that we behaved worst of all was in the privacy of our own house, behind closed doors. I was kind to strangers. I put on my smile. I baked cupcakes for the PTA. I was the Girl Scout leader mom. I spent time with everyone else's kids. You know, especially when I was the Girl Scout leader, I made my daughter be nice to kids on a regular basis who were really not very nice back to her, but it was important that we look good that we seem like we were nice people. I put on great elaborate parties and shows and events, and I gave my family the very worst of me. I threw temper tantrums. I let my husband take on much of the household responsibilities while I was out there putting on a show, looking like a good mom, right? This has to be addressed in the family afterwards. We must be the kinds of wives, mothers, daughters, sisters, et cetera, that God intended us to be. You know, it's not so spiritual of me to ignore my family, to work with sponsees, or to go to meetings even. You know, and this is where it becomes tricky for people. They're not sure in recovery. Like, what about my husband? Where's your husband right now? Doesn't he, you know, aren't you supposed to spend time with him? And these are things that, you know, we have to sort of work out that we've got to work on together. Yes, my recovery is critical, right? But, um, but my family relations are important as well. And especially we're reminded that this is the family afterward. This is after the person has begun to get well. They have to make sure that they show up for their family. You know, page 127 talks about family talks, that they'll be constructive if they can be carried on without heated argument self-pity, self-justification, or resentful criticism. So when we have to discuss things with our families, we have to be looking to build them up, not tear them down. We're gentle in our demeanor. We're gentle in our words. And if I'm not able to talk without arguing or harboring resentments, then we wait until our emotional sobriety is back in check. Remember that off that reminder about pausing. That pause is crucial. You know, and my daughter years ago would say when we were having this heated discussion over something, she would say, aren't you going to say anything? Are you going to say something? And I have to be especially mindful to not turn the talks to opportunities to use my verbal skills to manipulate because I'm pretty good at that. I've, I've got practice at that. I'm able to talk. That's one of my gifts, right? I can't use it to get people to do what I want. And so, you know, I have used self-pity as a weapon 
And if you expect others to give you permission to act in ways which are hurtful, unkind, and selfish, because you've gone through a hard time, that's called self-pity. And, you know, I want to stress that there's a difference between self-pity and grief, because they also get confused. People get confused. And grief is a normal response to loss. Being sad is not a defect, but grief may cause us temporarily to retreat to ourselves, but it allows others to be comforted and at some point it invites others back in. And we may always feel some level of grief if we had a painful loss, but the day comes when we, you know, when we welcome the way the world continues to spin on its axis. And we notice the rhythm of being alive and we step back into the rhythm of the world. And self-pitying is a response to grief that supports prolonging the pain. It pushes people away. And I think it's grief that turns into the grief stricken. You know, and so for myself, I lived in self-pity and I lived in self-justification. And so now sometimes I have to be careful and I have to pause so that I don't go there again to get people to do what I want. Um, you know, when you say things to yourself, like I have every right to blank or I have every right not to blank. Um, and you're filling in the blank with something you know you should not do you're probably using self-pity as a self, as a justification, you know? And so my, the way that I showed up for many years um, is I would show up to family events with my mental lists of hurts and griefs. And I would show up at my dinner table this way and I would pout or smile, a fake smile. And, you know, in front of other people, I, you know, would eat nicely. I would eat calmly and then eat in the bathroom. Right. That's what I did. Um, or sometimes I would just binge openly in plain view. And I used my personal losses as my as my past, my free pass, to not be the person that I knew I should be. And then I would criticize others for their parenting, for their shallowness, for their opinions. And um, we can't live that way anymore. So for me, it requires sometimes I'm quiet and I wait. Right. And I ask God, is this. Is this how you want me to be? Does this moment require honesty? Does it require restraint? How should I best serve others around me? Page 128 says, giving rather than getting will become the guiding principle. So guiding principle are any principles or precepts that guide an organization through its life in all circumstances. And you know, it tells me that regardless of what's going on, we remain giving. Because if you think about a guiding principle, these are principles we can lean on when we need guidance. Meaning when there are bumps, what's the use of having a guiding principle when you don't rely on it in hard times? Then you don't need guidance, right? I need to be guided when things feel bumpy. Page 128 says, assume on the other hand that father has at the outset a stirring spiritual experience. Overnight, as it were, he's a different man. He becomes a religious enthusiast. He's unable to focus on anything else. As soon as his sobriety begins to be taken as a matter of course, the family may look at their strange new dad with apprehension and then with irritation because their spiritual talk 
noon and night, morning, noon and night. And, you know, it further goes on to say that we have indulged in spiritual intoxication. Holy smokes, I've gotten drunk on my spiritualism. I've gotten off on it, right? And then it says here that we, like a gaunt prospector, belt drawn in over the last ounce of food, our pick struck gold. Joy at our release from a lifetime of frustration knew no bounds. Father feels he has struck something better than gold. And for a time, he may try to hug the new treasure to himself. And I love this next part because this tells me exactly what I'm going to have to do. He may not see at once that he has barely scratched a limitless load, which will pay dividends only if he mines it for the rest of his life and insists on giving away the entire bottle. What this tells me is that everything that I get, all the gifts that I get from my recovery, I have to be willing to hand it all over to my family, all the wonderful spiritual experiences, all the benefits that I've received. I have to be able to give it over to fellows, to sponsees, to my family. And if I give it all over, I'm guaranteed that it's a limitless load, that I never have to worry about my relationship with God being depleted because I'm giving to others. I never have to worry about my spiritual connection diminishing because I'm pouring out time for others as well. You know, and I found that I can talk too much about spiritual matters. And we're really told that is not the way that we convince people. It's our demeanor. It is always with our demeanor. You know, um, Page 132, it says, we are in a glum lot. If newcomers could see no joy or fun in our existence, they would not want it. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. We try not to indulge in cynicism over the state of the nations, nor do we carry the world's troubles on our shoulders. So we think cheerfulness and laughter make for usefulness. So, Part of how we're useful is being cheerful, is having a positive demeanor, is smiling, right? Is being optimistic, is being good humored. That's part of how we're useful. Yes, to our fellowship and especially to our families. Outsiders are sometimes shocked when we burst into merriment over a seemingly tragic experience out of the past, but why shouldn't we laugh? We have recovered and have been given the power to help others. Everybody knows that those in bad health and those who seldom play do not laugh much. So let each family play together or separately as much as their circumstances warrant. We are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. I love that. Right? We're told God wants us to be happy. God does not want me to be miserable. But if trouble comes, cheerfully capitalize it as an opportunity to demonstrate his omnipotence. So we're supposed to be happy. I did not recover so that I would be miserable. And I laugh with my family. We lovingly tease each other. 
my husband loves to chide me when I order food in a restaurant. I mean, that's like, you know, we always have a good laugh. Um, we hike together, we go to water parks, we go, we kayak, we go to concerts together. Um, and I believe that, you know, one of the greatest things that I can do to show gratitude to my creator is that to enjoy the world that he created, not to point out all the ills, all the wrongs that are happening in the world today. I can choose to look at the world that way if I want to, but I believe God wants me to be happy, joyous, and free. And that's how we carry the message because people are attracted to those that are a demonstrator of joy. That's what draws people in. More than great weight loss, by the way. The most, the thing that usually draws people in, the things that people usually comment on is your demeanor, is how you conduct yourself. And um, that's the greatest gift that I can give. That's the greatest way I can show appreciation to my family and to my loving creator. And with that, I'll pass.